As we come to our Old Testament text today, prior to coming to our Old Testament text today, I want to frame it in light of the New Testament, in light of the Gospel. We should, as we read and study the Old Testament, do that in light of the New Testament, in light of the New Covenant, in light of the Gospel. Look with me on the screen at Galatians chapter 2. It says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Paul is writing here in Galatians 2, and he has observed uh, Peter and Barnabas and others, basically of those of you that aren't familiar with the context of racism. They were hanging out with certain people that were of other races and eating foods with them. And then when people of their own race came, they kind of shied away, more than shied away, they separated themselves from those people and thought of themselves as superior and thought of the food as they're eating as superior. And so Paul rebukes Peter and those who were doing that in Galatians 2. Another translation puts it this way, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I bring this up before we get into today's text, not to really get into Galatians 2 very much, but more broadly to talk about you and me acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Before we come to our Old Testament text, I want to draw our attention to the reality that the gospel is not only something to believe, That Jesus died and rose on the third day. But the gospel is full of themes or lines or contours that we are to be aligned with. Now, those of you that that know me, my wife especially, who've known me a long time, I love maps. Anybody here like maps? I love maps. And my favorite maps are topographical maps the ones with all the lines on them. And you learn to look at those topographical maps and you can see cliffs and mountains represented by lines. And what I want to suggest before we get into our Old Testament text where we're going to see four gospel themes, that the gospel has all of these contours or themes to it. And the mature Christian is living in alignment with those themes. The gospel is like a, a device that we want to be calibrated with. I brought, a, I brought a prop with me today. Is that okay? Say yes. Say yes. I brought a prop with me today. It's not a bear. A few of you know what this, a few of you know what this is. This is a shock pump for, for not to shock you, but to, to put air in your, your pump on your, did I mention to you I like to mountain bike? On your mountain bike. That's, that's part of why I like topographical maps. This helps you to get the bike dialed in. So as you're going over rocks and roots and all sorts of things, this little gauge helps you to get that shock calibrated so that you're going to ride in an appropriate and enjoyable way on the bike. And the gospel is like that little gauge. It is not just something to believe, but it is something to be in step with 
or something to be in line with. And Peter and his friends have stepped out of line with the gospel. And so do you, and so do I. So we read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament and in light of the gospel. So we are looking for gospel themes today. We're going to see four of them that overlap with New Testament gospel themes or contours. And we need God's grace. You and I, if you are a Christ follower, we are here today not primarily to be, we are not here at all to be entertained. We are not here primarily for knowledge. Knowing the facts and details of ancient Israel, Israelite history is of very limited value. We are here, and I am preaching, because you and I are called to live beautiful and joyful lives. And we need God's grace to help us to do that. And so we are here more for the Bible to read us and to change than we are here to read the Bible. The gospel is like a shock pump, if you will. And we need to be calibrated. Let's turn our attention now to our text for today. I'm going to read. Hopefully you have your Bibles or devices open. You can just type in Google, 2 Samuel 3, if you didn't bring a Bible with you. I'm going to begin, your Bible's in the chairs in front of you, in verse 22. You'll be able to track with me today better if you read and follow along. 2 Samuel 3 and verse 22. Just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. So this is a military raid, and they brought a lot of goods back. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron, because David had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. Verse 23, when Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king, and that the king had spent and the king had sent him away, and that he had gone in peace. So a few things here on this, these first uh, few verses, up through verse 23. There is a huge emphasis on peace here. David, the king of Israel, has sent this dude Abner away in peace. In peace. It's actually three times. If you look your eyes, if you cast your eyes back up to verse 21, last week's text concluded, so David sent Abner away and he went in peace. And then again, he had gone in peace, verse 22. And then again, verse 23, he had gone in peace. Do you get the theme here? Okay, now for those of you who have no idea who Abner is or David is or the background, a little bit of background here. I've described Abner as kind of like a mafia leader. He was ruling over most of the territory of Israel. He was in competition with David, who is the God-anointed king of Israel. So we have two power, power people, power leaders, two kings, if you will. Abner wasn't actually the king. Ishbosheth was the king, but he was a really weak guy, and he's only king because he is the son of Saul, who's now dead. So Abner is ruling and reigning through this puppet king, Ishbosheth, 
and he and David are essentially enemies. Until last week, in our text last week, you might remember they had a party or a feast together. David had Abner, his adversary, his enemy, to his home, and they had a feast. And the writer of 2 Samuel is going out of his way to let us know that David made peace with him. And they are now, in the words of, of young people today, they are now calling each other bruh. They, they, are, they are close. They have peace between them. You got that? Peace. So this, you might guess, would be our first theme of four gospel themes. As we read the Bible, we actually want the Bible to read our hearts and lives. And the kind of peace we're talking about here is not just a feeling. Because let's be honest here, there are times where you or I could have peace in our hearts, but we're actually very far outside of God's will. So our feelings are genuine, but they're not always reliable. Our feelings are genuine. I might feel peace, but, what this, but I might not actually be in God's will, and so I shouldn't actually be feeling peace. But David and Abner are feeling peace here because David was active in making peace. A better word might be peacemaker. To connect this passage with the New Testament, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. One of the characteristics, one of the qualities of Christ's followers is that we go out and make peace. We are peacemakers. Not just seeking to find it in our own hearts and our own feelings, but we actually make peace happen. That's what David has done with Abner. One commentator speaking about Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about being peacemakers, Jesus' concern in this beatitude is not with the peaceful, but with the peacemakers. He wants you and me, like David in today's text, to be peacemakers. Another commentator, it is in practice that you prove whether you are a peacemaker or not. David, the text is abundantly clear, has made peace with his former enemy and adversary, Abner. Abner knew all along that David was anointed by Samuel, by God, to be the king over all of Israel. But he said, no, I'm going to take most of the territory. And he was in an adversarial relationship with him. But now David has had him to his dinner table. And he has made peace. This is the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word, one of the few Hebrew words that you probably are familiar with. It generally means peace or well-being or wholeness. It's used constantly in modern Hebrew. If you're speaking Hebrew, I've only been in Israel 10 days of my life, but when I was there, I heard many people say shalom ka, peace to you, throwing that pronominal suffix on the end of, of shalom, peace to you in a very general way. But if you have been at Cornerstone for some time, you know that every word, or almost every word, has a variety of meanings, what scholars call a semantic range. And the kind of peace, the kind of shalom we're talking about here isn't like shalom ka, hey, have a good day, peace be with you. That it's much different than that, the way shalom is being used here in this passage. 
It is peace in the sense of a private sense. It is speaking with someone peaceably. In this case, someone who was an adversary. It is to separate from one another contentedly. That is what happened when they split ways. To depart in peace, to walk in peace and honesty. I think you've got the point here in these first few verses. This is about peace. And so, the Christ follower at this point should be thinking about yourself. I should be thinking about myself. Am I a peacemaker? Have I made peace with adversaries of mine? That is a mature way to read 2 Samuel 3. A mature way to to read 2 Samuel 3 is not to know all of the technical and historical details about the divided monarchy and how long David has now been ruling and Abner is has not ruling over his territory. That is not the mature way to read 2 Samuel 3. That might be helpful, but the mature way to read 2 Samuel 3 is, am I a peacemaker? Have I made peace with someone who was opposed to me? Have I had him to my dinner table? And did he go away? with shalom. Did she go away with peace? That's what the text is getting at. This is one of the gospel themes of the gospel that we are called to be in alignment with. Well, we've made it through verse 23. Let me pick up the pace and let's come back to our text here and uh, look at verse 24. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner. He came to deceive you, King David, and observe your movements. This is military language here. He came as a spy, is to paraphrase what Joab is saying to David, and find out everything that you were doing. Verse 26, Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner. So Joab has some power. He's way up there in David's administration. He's got people that report to him, and he sends them to Abner. And they brought him back, my text says, from the well of Sirah, The ESV is a little better here in saying the cistern. Some of you have visited Israel. You have walked down into these cisterns. This is what is being described here. They brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know it. And I have that circled in my Bible. We have an omniscient narrator here who is letting us know, letting the reader know some facts, that David isn't involved in this. The reader knows that David isn't involved in in Joab, bringing Abner back to Hebron. Verse 27. Now, when Abner returned to Hebron, brief comment here, Hebron is a city of refuge. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that, but in the Bible, a city of refuge is a place that someone who is in trouble can go. And justice will not be brought to them swiftly. It is a safe place to go. If if people are after you, and you think they are wrongly after you, you want to get to a city of refuge. You want to get to a place like Hebron. This isn't mentioned in the text, but the ancient reader would know this. 
So Abner has brought to Hebron by Joab. David knows nothing of it. I can't believe no one's made a movie of all this stuff. This would be, this would, this is a good script for, for Hollywood here. So Joab t- takes him aside. He's in the city of refuge. He takes him aside into the gateway as though to speak him pr- privately. Joab is aware that David and Abner have become bruh to each other. That there is interpersonal peace and shalom between them. He's aware of that. So he says, hey, I want to talk to you privately. Come on over here. And there, the omniscient narrator tells us to avenge the blood of his brother, Ashel. Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. This is a problem. This is a problem for David. Abner is a major power player. This is, this is like, I don't know, like, like stabbing the speaker of the house in the stomach when you said, hey, let's, we're in recess. Come on over here. Let, let's meet in this corridor over here. I need to talk to you about something personally. Uh, th- this is not a good thing for David. The reader knows that David is not involved in this situation. And we are also told the reason, the reason that Joab stabs him. Is it because Joab actually believes that he's a spy? No. Let's try that again. Everybody say no. No. Are you, are you tracking with me? Are you awake? No. He doesn't believe he's a spy. He killed his brother. And a natural fleshly response, especially if you're a military guy, for you or I, it might not be a natural fleshly response to actually murder someone, but a natural fleshly response that I would have is to want to murder someone and to avenge them if they killed my brother or my sister. That is a natural response. But when you're in a military culture where you're used to killing human beings on the battlefield, this becomes something that you can just do. And Joab did it, not on the battlefield, but in the private corridor. He kills him. He kills him. David doesn't know anything about this. Now notice, the author gives us details of how he stabbed him in the stomach. Why is this? Let's look back at 2 Samuel chapter 2. Ashael refused to give up the pursuit. There's this military battle going on, so Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Ashael's stomach. Notice, observation, we have two deaths here by stomach uh, by, by, by stabbing into the stomach. He fell there and died in the spot, and every man stopped when he came to the place where Ashel had fallen and died. So he is now killing Abner the same way that Abner killed his brother. Now, you're not an ancient Israelite, so you are probably not now thinking of Exodus chapter 21, but an ancient Israelite at this point would be thinking of Exodus chapter 21 which says you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So the ancient reader would be thinking of that going on right now. Is this what is happening right here? This is what Joab wants us to think is actually happening. That he is following scripture, that he's following what is known as the lex talinus, the law of retaliation. If you went to law school, I think a couple of you did, you would have learned about this law of retaliation in law school, the lex talionis. And the basic principle here is the principle of proportionality. 
And so if we go back to the text here, it says life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So if we want to contextualize this to today, the principle of this law is if somebody just, you know, a minor crash hits the, takes out the bumper of your car, everything else is fine, you just need a new bumper. The principle here in Scripture in Exodus 21 is you get a new bumper. You don't get to get some super attorney and sue for $25 million. He destroyed your bumper and you get a new bumper. That is the principle. But this is not what is going on here. Joab is abusing this text and this idea because his brother was killed in a military context. He wasn't murdered through deception in, in this room. This is not the Lex Talionis. This is not what is going on here. So what does God want us to see in this text? How does this relate to us? Obviously, revenge is, is the natural response for us. When someone does some, something that, that hurts us or wounds us, the natural response is for revenge. But a gospel response, a theme of the gospel, how God would want us to respond is to actually be a peacemaker and be able to forget the terrible things that someone has done. And Abner has done a lot of terrible things. And so the careful reader of 2 Samuel chapter 3 will see not only did David have Abner to his dinner table, but he was able, like was already mentioned in our time of confession, by God's grace, he's able to, in a sense, forget what has happened in Abner's past. 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, puts it this way. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. David didn't have access to 1 Corinthians 13, but he is living out the truth of gospel love. David sends Abner away in peace, in interpersonal peace. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Joab has the record of wrongs at the very top of his heart and his mind, and he is ready for revenge. He is ready to pounce. David is aware of all of the mafia kind of stuff that Abner has done, but he's had him to his table, and he has forgiven him. He has loved him. So a gospel theme that we have here, the second gospel theme, is the theme of love. And a very specific, not some sappy, sentimental kind of love, but the kind of love that keeps no record of wrongs. This is impossible to do, I want to suggest, apart from God giving us grace. It's so impossible that that Abner can can show up and say to the king, to the boss, this this isn't the three... uh, three branches of government that have equal power, that this is a monarchy, why does he have the boldness to say to David what he said to him? Because Abner has done so many things wrong, and and Joab has kept a record of them, including killing my brother, but David has let those wrongs go. He has made peace. See, this text really penetrates deep into our hearts. So hopefully, If you are a Christ follower, at this point, you may have thought of some people in your family or an ex or a co-worker or a boss or an employee that you are in an adversarial relationship with. 
Have you been a peacemaker? That's what this text is about. Are you willing to forget wrongs and to forgive? This is at the very heart of the gospel. And David is at the very top of his game, if we could use that language. Better language would be, David is at a place of submitting to the lordship of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and his grace is ruling and reigning in his life. And we've got quite a few more chapters of David just being very close to the Lord before David goes off the rails. And I'm, I'm not looking forward to that so much. So I'm enjoying these chapters where David is so close to the Lord and he's doing beautiful and extraordinary things. The mature believer reading 2 Samuel 3 will say, Am I the kind of person who is able to keep no record of wrongs by the grace of God? The gospel theme of love. That brings us through verse 27. So he stabbed him in the stomach and he died. And this is a big problem for David. It is a personal problem for David because he's made peace with Abner. He's his brother now. And it's a political problem for David. Because when one of your top guys kills the former adversary who gave you all of the territory, uh, gave you land that you now rule and reign over, and he's come back to a city of refuge and has been murdered in this way, cold blood, premeditated, He's got political problems. The reader knows David doesn't know anything about it, but the people of Israel don't know that. And so David's in trouble. Well, what happens? Let's come back to this, this great movie script. Verse 28. I think this is a great movie script. Verse 28. Later, when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. May Joab's house never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. <laughs> so I think it's okay to laugh a little bit here. Um, David is using very colorful language and expressions that I'm not going to go through all of these. He's basically making it really clear that he is completely opposed to what Joab has done and basically calls a curse upon Joab and upon all of the descendants of Joab and using very cover, colorful language. Um, may Joab's house, that means may, may Joab's descendants never be without someone who has a running sore. <laughs> I mean, I have to laugh at that a little bit. He is completely opposed to what Joab has done. And he is using this incredible language to describe that. Verse 30, Joab and his brother, uh, Joab and his brother Ibishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Ashael in the battle at Gibeon. In case you didn't get that earlier, the omniscient narrator is telling us what his true motive of, was, why this murder happened. It happened in order to revenge the death. It is very far from love. Verse 31, Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. We're talking about now the casket of Abner. 
Did you, do you get what's happening here? He's, he's telling Joab to prepare for the memorial service that is happening right now, the funeral for Joab. And you're walking in front of the casket. This is a public display that you are not rejoicing over his death, but you are mourning over it, Joab. And David tells Joab to do this. So uh, back to the text, verse 31. So tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bier. That's B-I-E-R. That's not Coors Light. He walked behind the bier. That word describes the stand that the casket would be on. So the murderer is in front of the casket, and King David is behind the casket, and they're traveling through the city. This is the most detailed description of a funeral that we have in the Old Testament. Verse 32, they buried Abner in Hebron, city of refuge. And the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang this lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? This is a shame, is what David's poetry, his lament is saying. Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. Meaning you could have defended yourself, but but you had no idea this was coming. This was so awful and deceptive and evil and wicked. You fell as one falls before wicked men. And all the people wept over him again. The reader here sees another gospel theme and sees David leading very well. David displays his tender heart publicly. He wept aloud and he led the rest of the people in mourning over Abner's death, who most of his life did not live an exemplary life, but he turned the corner at the end. And he gave the territory over to the anointed king, the the king anointed by God, and he made peace with the king. And now David has led the entire country, including Joab, to mourn the death of this guy who most of his life was like a mafia figure. And David wept openly and in public. Who does that remind you of? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. We have this culture in America. I've talked to it about it many times. I'm not going to deliberate on it long today, where men, where we apologize for crying, women too, I'm so sorry. I'm, the Bible encourages weeping when an injustice happens, when a death happens, to weep, to grieve. And David leads the nation in this. So we have the gospel theme of peace, the gospel theme of love, the gospel theme of tenderness. And one final theme that we're going to see here um, in the last couple verses, we are now uh, up to verse 35. So let me, let's look at verse uh, 35 and, and finish up. They all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day, but David took an oath, saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. This was part of grieving in that day and culture is that you fast. And David the king did this. Verse 36, all the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. David has a 100% approval rating from the population of the nation of Israel after the guy who just handed over the most territory of the land of Israel to him has just been murdered by one of his right men. This is a political success. This is a personal success. And this is a tragedy that Abner was murdered. 
So everything the king did pleased them. Verse 37, so on that day all the people in all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. 38, then the king said to his men, do you not realize that a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am anointed king, I am weak. Or better, the translation that was read earlier by Helen, I am gentle. We could paraphrase here that David is gentle and lowly of heart. Does this remind you of anyone? He is contrasting that even though he is the anointed king, that he is gentle, that he is tender, that he is weak. And these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. Those who sought revenge and are very successful military people, they're too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. The fourth and final gospel theme that we see here is that David shows mercy when judgment is appropriate. Now, Joab wanted the people of Israel to see that the Lex Talionis was being followed by his murdering, this, by killing, taking the life the same way that his brother was taking life. That was a, a, a false plea. But here the reader would be thinking, okay, David, it is now appropriate for you as king to execute justice. A life was taken by murder in the first degree. And, and David is the king, he's the judge, and the reader is expecting him to take Joab's life. A life for a life. Premeditated murder, you lose your life. You killed someone. This is because life is so precious and so valuable that the state, the kingdom of Israel, the king has authority to take the life of Joab for what he has done. And the reader is expecting that to happen. But David shows mercy when judgment is appropriate. The Christ follower who's reading this passage is thinking the same way. The mature reader is thinking, am I inclined to show mercy to people who deserve judgment, who have wounded me, who have done me wrong, who have done others wrong? Am I asking God for grace that I would show them mercy instead of the judgment that they deserve? We can close out today looking at the book of James. Chapter 2, it says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. David may have had his critics here, but David has shown mercy to Joab. David has shown tenderness and that he wept and grieved over what has happened on both a political and a personal level. David has shown love by having this guy to his home, who most of his life has been plotting and planning behind David's back and, and taking most of the territory of the nation of Israel. David was a peacemaker. These are the things that God calls us to. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask him to help us to live in alignment with the gospel. Lord, uh, our flesh, uh, we are quick to judge. We are quick to seek revenge. We are quick to be angry. 
left to ourselves and our own flesh and our own thinking. We ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel, that we would live in alignment with these gospel themes, being peacemakers, keeping no records of wrongs, and actually longing to be the kind of people to show mercy to those who don't even deserve it. God, would you change us and make us like our, our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.